0: Everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. I want to update you regarding several exciting events at Matan before moving to the Parsha. Matan will be marking 35 years of women's Torah learning with a Yishai Rebo concert at the Jerusalem Theater on October 8th or the 13th of Tishrei, right before Sukkot. If you will be here in Israel, we would love to see you there. Registration for the coming academic year is well underway. Please check out the Matan website for all relevant information. Matan will be running its annual Elul program from September 11th through the 22nd, or the 15th to the 26th of Elul. The Elul program is a great opportunity to get a taste of Matan and recharge for the coming year. There are parallel Hebrew and English programs. Check out our website and all social media platforms for more information. Lastly, if you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Ekev includes some iconic passages, but none of them are new per se. As a reminder, Moshe is deep in what we're calling the mitzvah speech, or Numa Mitzvot, the central section of Dvarim. He speaks about reward for mitzvah observance, the journey in the desert and its lessons, mostly from the people's sins, the importance of blessing God for the good and not forgetting Him during the good times, review of the whole golden calf episode and Moshe's prayer and the receiving of the second luchot, and a final section where Moshe again urges them to follow mitzvot, including the second chapter of Shema, which focuses on the theology of reward and punishment. Today, we will be addressing the seeming repetitions in the Book of Durim with a returning guest, Rabbanita Dina Sternberg, longtime lecturer at Matan, newly accepted into the Kitvuni program in which she will be completing the writing of a book on the holidays. Adina was a student at Matan's Hilchitza program. She is also a lecturer in the Afrata College and will be teaching this coming academic year in the Midrashah at Barilan University. Adina, it's great to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: So, let, let's go deep into this uh, parasha. As I already suggested in the introduction, there is a certain complexity about reading these parshiot and trying to see there's moving passages, there are descriptions that are significant understanding the way things develop that are sometimes also slightly different than how they were described perhaps in earlier books of the Torah. But as I said, there are repetitions that we see, and we're looking at a speech, we're learning the speech of Moshe, and sometimes we ask ourselves, what is the significance of all of these different passages that come together.
1: Great, I, I totally agree with you. I think that's one of the challenges of the beginning of Devarim. You mentioned Neuma uh, Mitzvot, where later we'll have very specific passages each one dedicated for a different mitzvah where you can define what mitzvah we're talking about and learn it and go on and in the beginning of Dvarim, it sort of feels like we keep on going over again and again and again the same things and even if we try to sort of define what each passage is talking about it's not always easy of making you know sense of everything, So on one hand, you can say to yourself, well, you know what, Moshe Rabbeinu is living the people of Israel, and he needs to impart his wisdom. And like anyone who wants to impart his wisdom with his family or his students or his children, he'll end up, you know, repeating himself again and again and again. But what he had to say was also written down. So I'm assuming he put everything in that was important and gave a chedosh, like gave something new to think about and to reflect.
0: So You're saying you can't just explain it based on the fact that he's speaking and oration tends to repeat itself. By the way, I'll say one of the best constructive criticisms I received from early podcast episodes is that somebody said to me, you often say the same thing in two different ways, which was a really good criticism. And I've since tried to be better about that. But you're saying you can't. That's not enough to describe Moshe's speech. That he's just saying the same thing in a number of ways. There has to be deeper significance because if it was chosen to be written down for generations, it means that it had it had something that was meant to stay, and it wasn't just rhetorical.
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it also um, it also sort of forces us to look at the way things were structured and to look at the thing the way things were written down, and even those of people listening to it then maybe accepted it or heard it in a different way, when we read it, it also calls to our attention to compare between things, to notice what's unique about each passage, to notice where each speech begins and where it ends, what comes before each speech, what comes after each speech. It, the fact that it's written down also gives us a time to ponder and to look and to, and to reflect. And, and here I want us first of all to notice not everybody pays attention to the fact that there are two speeches here. That they begin, they have an opening line. They also, I find very interesting, they also start with not exactly a story, but a historical reference. Meaning, the first speech we have, it tells us this happened right after they conquered the MRE. And now we're starting a speech. And then the speech ends, and then Moshe does something. There's a story. Moshe goes and sets aside the Aremiklat, the cities of refuge. And then he starts speaking again. So even the story that comes together with the speech also can help us understand uh, the connection and what the speech is trying to address and what, what it's going to talk about. In fact that there are two speeches calls to mind. Notice that one is talking about one thing, the other is talking about another. I think that if we think about it, the stories that come before the speeches really help us understand what the speeches are here for. Um, and it can also understand which elements Moshe Rabbeinu decided to f- put in the first speech and which elements he decided to put in the second speech. For example, when you open up the Book of Tvarim and Moshe Rabbeinu standing and giving like, supposedly a kind of historical way to look at what happened up till now, like a summary of let's talk about our history together. He decides to start with Chetam Ereglim, the sin of the spies. That's not our first story. That's not our first sin. Why start with that? And I think that tells us because he's not trying to tell us a historical story. He's trying to tell us something else. And if we talk about the story that begins before the speech, which is conquering the Amori, and beginning the speech with the sin of the spies, it comes to say, we're trying to address a certain issue. Let's see how we address it. And the first speech, I think what Moshe Rabbeinu is trying to address, is... The fear of the people of entering the land, of conquering the land. So Masha Rabbeinu says, I know this is scary. That's why I'm showing you we can do it. I'm conquering Zayamari. And I want to talk about this fear of entering the land. That's why I'm going to mention the sin of the Meraglim. Now let's talk about it. And I'm going to tell you, I believe you can do it. Not only do I believe you can do it, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to tell you how we walked through different nations and every nation God told us that we're not allowed to conquer, we didn't conquer. And not only that, I'll tell you how they themselves conquered the land that they're sitting in because God wanted them to conquer it. And you read through the first chapter, the first speech, and you say, why do I care about the Rephaim and the Zamzumim and all the different names of the giants that the different nations gave in the past? Who cares? But the point is that each and every one of these nations conquered giants. Mm -hmm. And why does this matter? Because you were afraid of these giants. This is what scared you. So let's talk about it. Okay, so that, I
0: think, is our first speech. So I just want to clarify for everyone listening that the first speech we're speaking about began in the previous Parsha.
1: It actually began in Dvarim.
0: Sorry, the first speech begins in Dvarim. It
1: begins in Dvarim. It ends in the middle of Vayetchanan. Right. And then, after talking about that and saying you can conquer the land and whoever God wants to conquer the land will. And you know what? Moshe Rabbeinu is not going to enter the land because God decided he's not going to enter the land. That's all part of this message. Even I, Moshe Rabbeinu, won't enter the land because that's what God decided. So God decided you will enter the land. You will. You just need to remember to fulfill the mitzvot. That's part of the deal. But that's what's important. Like, I think what Moshe Rabbeinu is trying to say, I'm not trying to tell you that you were bad because you sinned. That's not my point my point is to try to recognize why did you sin because there's a certain issue that we need to deal with
0: right there was a fear underlying basically the destiny that you've been given
1: right it's like an education you can get annoyed at your kids or your students for doing something bad or you can try to see what led up to it what caused it what are they missing what are their needs and try to address those needs so that they don't sin again
0: yeah So uh, what you're saying right now is basically been a beautiful perspective and summary on the previous Parsha up up until Ekev. So we have that first speech which actually ends in in the middle of the previous Parsha. And if I could even say something, maybe it's a little bit provocative, but we've spoken about before in this podcast the important recognition that the division of the Torah into Prakim are not always helpful divisions. But you're also suggesting, and not just you, okay, that it would be helpful to read Sefer Dvarim according to its speeches. There is something logical about not breaking it up into each parsha because you lose the sequence of what Moshe is trying to say. So that is a great perspective, and it sort of gives us something to think about, to go back and think about from the previous parsha.
1: The point is that up till now I've been kind of, you know, it's, that was the easy part okay because really if you open up the first speech you see that there's a story that we're trying to go along you don't always understand why it's there but more or less there's a story being told the problem is when we get to the second speech where really the feeling is that it keeps on going over and over and over again i i think we can if we try to sum up what are the major main ideas of the speech is okay love god Fear God. be wary of avodah zarah. Don't forget God. Love God. Fear God. Okay, so we keep on going over these same ideas. So what do we do with it? So what most people do is kind of, sort of like listen with half an ear, and zoom out until they finish the parsha. Okay, I mean that's what most people do for parsha in general. But now it's a even more. <laughs> it's even more,
0: now you may you think you may not miss anything if you <laughs> exactly okay <laughs> same
1: out. same etc. What I'm suggesting, and here I'd like to introduce our um, character into our podcast, is try to follow in the footsteps of Rav Elchanan Samet, who's a great Torah scholar, Tanakh scholar, who's very big on pshat learning. And one of the downfalls is that Rav Samit, he has this belief in a method that he can use for every single text that he encounters, which on one hand is very beautiful, okay? Meaning you come with your set of tools and you go to the text and you try to define where does the text begin and where does the text end, and you cut it up in the middle and you compare the two different parts, or you do a comparison be- between this text and the different text, and from that you get to all kinds of insights. Again, it doesn't always work, and sometimes you're kind of imposing your method on the text, but, but it's nice to see a serious learning. I think part of the problem that a lot of people think about Tanakh learning is that, okay, it's all parshanut. Who says that it's true? Who says, you can say this, you can say that, my father-in-law, every time we discuss Tanakh, he says, okay, but it's all, you know assumptions, it's all um, wishful thinking, it's all...
0: It doesn't have um, hard truths of, you know, Talmudic learning, or the, you know, that's yeah. like what tach, Tanakh gets the reputation of being soft, or it's kind of how people often think in general about literature or written work, said, well, it's just, the you know, in the eye of the beholder, and there aren't any objective, you know, rules or regulations, and so therefore it can be seen as, as exactly. soft.
1: The more I learn Talmud, I think the same as a It's the same with Talmud I, and Halacha. I, I agree,
0: by the way. I but, agree, which is why I don't agree with that analysis of Tanakh at all.
1: Right. But I think what Ravel Khan Ansamit tries to do. He
0: brings a rigor. He brings a rigor to his right. study.
1: Like he has a set of tools. Yeah. Where you can all use the same set of tools and then see if you agree on on the conclusions.
0: So I'll just add one point here about what you're trying to explain to us is that he uses structural study. But he uses a very specific kind of structural study where, as you said, he takes a unit, he tries to break it up always into halves. He often tries to find a certain chaotic structure where there's a parallel between the beginning and the end. Uh, and I do just want to say that those tools look like literary tools. I mean, they, they, they have a certain similarity to what's called structuralism, which is a discipline that actually did not start in the world of literature, but it highly influenced the world of literature. And and he uses those tools, but they're, he's not using them coming from uh, a biblical academic perspective. Um, he doesn't the, the rules that he has. A lot of them are his own rules. Um, they're not necessarily rules that would be taught in university or utilized in in university articles. I'm not saying that with any judgment in my voice. I just want to clarify that. Uh, and his works, his his parshat shavuot books are used very often by students, you know, in yeshiva and midrashot. And as you said, they really create a certain rigor. Sometimes they can look for things that may not. Be there, which is the downfall of uh-huh. I think what you're referring to. Yeah.
1: Well, two anecdotes. One is that I had the merit of going over Rav Summit's book. I got paid to do it. <laughs> I did the proofreading. I didn't do any editorial job, but I got to go over it, You know, open up all the sources, make sure that they're cited correctly, etc. So what better than to be paid to read Rav Summit's book? Um, so that's one anecdote. And so I have a certain uh, soft spot for the book itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is I have a certain kind of sympathy with Rav Summit, As you said, like... It's a kind of uh, an academic approach to learning, which isn't accepted by the academia. Correct. Like you end up sort of being nishta here, nishta here. Like you're not really in the bet midrash because you've left aside the classic methods of learning. On the other hand, no one in the academia will actually accept you because it seems to them far fetched or just not using their language. So, but I am glad that a lot of people are learning his things and reading them, because it does give you a real sense of taking serious what you're doing mm-hmm. and looking for logic and insights. that's not only based on gut feeling, but on a certain set of tools uh, for learning. And in any case, what I want to do is to bring in what Rav Samet, um does when he deals with our parashat. And what he does is he notices the passages that are very similar. He notices that Moshe talks about forgetting God in different situations. You'll forget God, you'll forget God, you'll forget, make sure not to forget. But then he goes and he says, okay, but let's put these passages, one next to each other, and try to see, are they talking about the same thing, or are they just using similar language, but dealing with different things? And one of the things that Rav Tamit does is he compares two passages that talk about forgetting God. Whereas in one passage, the reason for forgetting God is because the people will enter the land of Israel, and they're going to find their houses full of food, and they're going to find their cities that are big, and they're going to find water holes that were already dug, and they're going to find vineyards and olive trees that they didn't plant, and it's going to be so plentiful and such an abundance that they're going to forget about God because it's like, you know, like a child in a candy store where he doesn't remember that his parents brought him into the candy store. And he's like, oh, wow, everything here is so wonderful. It even reminds me of, uh, you know, of. An old joke about a person driving around in Tel Aviv looking for a parking spot. It could be any city in the the world, but any big city. And he's driving around, driving around, and at a certain point, he turns to God and says, God, if you just give me a parking space, I promise A, B, C, D. And as he's finishing his remarks, a space clears right in front of him. And he says, ah, I found it. God, I don't need your help anymore. Right? So you enter the land of Israel. And there's such an abundance and it's all there, coming at you where you forget that you got it from God because God didn't give it to you. It was all here already. And you come and you enter and your eyes open up and you're enjoying this abundance after so many years of, you know, eating man and, and you're going to forget God. So, so here we're talking about forgetting God and, and Rav Simon says notice so that they find everything already ready. And we have a very similar passage about forgetting God. But there, the language is a different... In the second speech. In the second speech. Mm -hmm. And in our Parsha, in Parsha at Eikev, the first one was in the previous Parsha, but in the same speech. And in this one, we're not talking about the abundance that they find, but the abundance of the land. Eretz nachalei maim, okay? A land that has in it rivers, a land that can produce all kind of produce, a land that you can get out of it, different kinds of meadows, a land that's the bread out of it. And the fear now is that you're going to build houses, and you're going to plant. And the abundance is going to f- cause you to forget God. Except this time, it's going to be different. Because even though we're talking about forgetting God, in the first time we talked about it, you're forgetting God because you got everything ready-made. And the second time you're going to forget God because you made everything. And and it's a different kind of fear. And I think it also, what Rav Samet says, it also talks about different stages when the people of Israel are going to come into the land. In the beginning, they'll get everything from, you know, ready-made and they'll forget where it came from. But that's a certain kind of forgetfulness. But afterwards, they're going to work for it. And then you forget God, not because you forget that he gave it to you, but because you say to yourself, I did this. I did this, Mm -hmm. I made this, I worked for this. Why do I need to thank somebody else? Did I not work the land? Did I not wake up at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. to build and to plant? This is me. And God says, yeah, but who gave you this wonderful land? Who gave you this potential? Who gave you life? Who gave you the ability to work in the land? And, and even though you're working hard, and Yahshu koach and way to go. But, but don't forget that the ability to do all these things, these you got from God.
0: because the comparison of these two texts reminds us that recognizing God's part, quote unquote, in our life is different in different stages of our life. Right. right. That That's the point you're honing in on, that when you're coming to the land of Israel, I mean, they're just happy not to be, you know, sleeping in the middle of a desert. So what they're thankful for is is different than what they're going to have to be thankful for in 30 years' time after they've gone through different kinds of processes. And that's before we even get to any more, you know, bottom points of what you want to say. That's a very deep point to be recognized. You know, what I turn to God for in thanks or in request when I am 20 is going to be very different than what I recognize as God's part of my life when I'm 45. Those are very different spaces that we occupy and they will impact how we see God as involved. I don't know if that has anything to do about God's part actively changing, but certainly from our subjective space of where we're standing as humans that are growing, we are invited to see God's part as different and evolving also.
1: Right. I think also I always compare it to, you know, education mm-hmm. and raising kids. When your kids are, I don't know, five or ten, you really give them everything they have. Yeah. You, you, they know that they can open up the refrigerator and they're going to find food. You've provided all that food. They don't always remember it. That's part mm-hmm. of the problem. They take yeah. it for granted. They, they assume they're going to get all these things, but they forget that everything is from you. Mm -hmm. But then they get to become teenagers, you know, and they go out to work and they're studying for their tests Mm -hmm. and they're working for their social lives and they're doing so many things on their own, but they don't always remember that after they've, you know, dealt with the whole world all day long they come back home and they sleep in the bed that you provided
0: or that they had the energy or the wherewithal or the strength to do their whole day because they were raised for the first 15 years of their life in the place they were raised
1: and they have their support yeah and they have that foundation foundation and they have a certain sense of ability and self-confidence And you know, sometimes they come to the age of sixteen, and they look back and they say to themselves, "Like, what did my parents ever do for me?" Yeah, right. Because they've go
0: through that stage, (laughs) right?
1: But but it's really important in a certain time to realize that so much of what you are and what you have you got from your parents, even though sometimes at a certain point, your parents themselves will also step back and give you that space. But that's also part of what parents do, Yeah, give you that space, give you the ability, give you the self-confidence, give you uh, the, the education to be able afterwards to go out into the world. I mean, I think I, I love the fact that God, we're sort of partners with God, that he gives us this ability. He doesn't say, OK, I'll do everything for you all the time. He does want us to grow as people and as a nation. He just wants us to remember
0: that he is at the source. Yes. It's hard. I feel like it's a little bit of a built-in, a built-in fail. You know, if I'm thinking of just of the human example you're bringing, uh, there are moments. Like there will be moments where I'll have and I'll think of, wow, my parents did a tremendous amount. Or you know, 20 years later, you'll recognize that a move that they made or something they did was a tremendously devoted act as parents. But it's hard. You don't always remember it in the moment. I mean, thankfully, also with parents and also with God. We have moments to, you know, make up for it. Right. But all the times I passed the laundry. Mom, of all the times I passed the laundry on the stairwell and you asked me to take it up and I didn't, believe me, I'm paying I'm getting paid back for it with my <laughs> children now.
1: And we appreciate you doing our And laundry. we
0: appreciate it. I appreciate it all those years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to the Parsha.
1: Okay. Anyway, so that so that's one thing. I think I wanna take what Rav Samit did and do that with another set of passages. Okay. And for me, it's a very, very important message that we see in our parasha. And that is, there are two places where Moshe talks about our self, um, I don't know if it's a self-esteem or self-awareness, but places where um, Moshe addresses what we think about ourselves. Mm. And in one place he says, you know, you're going to need to conquer the land. And it's going to happen just remember it's not because you're that great okay mm-hmm. it's not that you're so great or so grand or whatever but you should know it's because god loves you and because god promised your forefathers okay so it's going to happen you're going to
0: say that's one of the first places we have the doctrine of chosenness that's mm-hmm. the first place where God chooses you not because you're you're many, you're actually small and pretty, Nebuch, as we would say in English. <laughs> but God chooses you because he loves you and because of the Brit with the Avot. That's the first place we have the doctrine of chosenness in the Torah. Okay.
1: And then what he's saying is you need to remember that. You need to remember it's not because you're greater or better. And you might think that because you conquer the land so quickly. Just like you get. The house is full of so much good, and you sort of forget where it comes from. So you need to remember that it's because God loves you without giving, giving any explanation. And because he promised your forefathers. But a couple of chapters later, again, Moshe is going to address the fact that we're going to conquer the land and we're going to conquer greater and bigger nations and you need to remember god but then he says something which i find is very very important he says you know what i'm worried i'm worried you're going to say that because you're righteous because you deserve it not because you're greater okay not a physical greatness but you're going to think that you have a spiritual greatness you're going to look around and you're going to say huh God said that in order to inherit the land, we need to do the mitzvot. So if we inherit the land, that means that we did the mitzvot. That means that we're righteous. That means that we're great. This reminds me of once on a um, radio show. There were two people talking, and one of them said to, him, to the other one, he said, we've had such a plentiful year with so much rain. For years we've been having droughts, and the rabbis have been telling us what we've done wrong. I want somebody to come and tell me what we did right.
0: I don't think that's such a crazy
1: request. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. okay. Oh, okay. It's a beautiful idea, but I think that part of what Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to say is, you know, God is a little bit more complex than that, okay? And God has his reasons. For example, God brought you here because the other nations deserve to be punished, and they don't deserve the land of Israel, Mm -hmm. and because he promised your forefathers. So if I'm living now, nowadays, in the land of Israel, is it because I'm righteous? Can I assume that God is happy with everything the people of Israel are doing now? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. And I think this is a problem that even nowadays in our Jewish society, Israeli society, we have this certain kind of hubris. This, we're better than the others. We're the most moral uh, army in the world. Okay. Which might be true. But we just need to be careful not to be addicted to the idea, Mm -hmm. meaning, okay, so we're back in the land of Israel, but God has his own reasons. It could have been because of the Holocaust. It could be because the time was up. It could be because God had mercy on us. And God has so many different considerations. It's true. While we're here, maybe even not while we're not, he's expecting us to keep his mitzvot in order to keep the land. And if we don't keep the mitzvot, we might be expelled and and sent away but also we might not
0: it's interesting because in this parsha we also have the we have the second chapter of shema and in there we have one of our classic sources of you do good you get good you do bad you get bad and then you're saying read this passage carefully and in this passage we're saying it's not so clear like that Mm -hmm. and i agree with you and again everyone listening knows that this is one of the topics i like to get sucked into so i will be careful but in many places in tanakh we have sources that very much suggest the clarity of you do good you get good and then other sources that undermine that theology in the same in the same breath and i think that if we read those passages next to each other then what we're forced to understand is more of this just wave the wave the flag put your hands up we're not really going to understand god right moshe is pushing us away at the same time then the same part of shema he's pushing us away from thinking that there is clarity on why things will happen a certain way.
1: but I think it's not only a matter of theology. It's not like, let's explain why good happens or why bad happens. I think it's more about education. Mm -hmm. When you walk around in the world, remember God and remember that he's complex and that the world is complex and strive to do good because that's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And because that's good in the eyes of God. But don't walk around with a sense of entitlement. Don't walk around the world feeling you're better than others just because you were more lucky than them or because God decided now to give you or tries a path of mercy. Mm -hmm. Meaning, I think that's part of being Jewish is knowing that God is looking uh, from above and taking things into consideration. But besides the fact that he doesn't work for us, he's not on our payroll, yeah. I think it's more of an educational way of looking at the world. Don't think of yourself too much. Don't always, just because something good happened. I mean, some people like to walk around in the world. If I made the bus, that means that God is happy. And if I right. missed yeah. the bus, then God is not happy. I, I don't like, besides the fact that I don't live that way, but I, I can understand living that way, but but like take it with a sense of humility. Yeah that maybe God maybe you're
0: not at the center of of God's thinking at this current moment
1: right (laughs) and also maybe God has all kinds of considerations Right, and maybe right now he's not thinking about you but he's thinking about Avraham Yitzchak and Yaakov right or he's thinking about how much he does not like our enemies
0: I think it might go without saying but for the generation of people coming into Israel they remember that it wasn't really about them. But as time goes on, meaning it wasn't about them. If there were sins in the previous generation, they all died out. And then they get to go in because they're the next generation in line. Mm-hmm. But as you continue on in history, people will forget that very easily. And, and Devarim as being Moshe's speech, which, as we said, is you know going to be it's going to be with us for the next many, many generations. And it wasn't just for that time is reminding us that that's really easy to forget when you're seven generations ahead in Eretz Yisrael Mm -hmm. and working the land. And that's why this needs to be written down and repeated so that they can remember. What might have been clear to the generation coming into Israel certainly wasn't going to be clear to even two generations after, as it'll say in Yeshua.
1: Now, what I like is that Moshe Rabbeinu, in a sense, he had two speeches. One told us, you can do it. You can enter the land. You can conquer the land. He's sort of giving us, you know, self-confidence. Mm-hmm. God is with you, and it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And in the second one, he says, okay, just, but don't, you know, remember, it's God who's cheering you on. It's yeah. God who's giving you the land. And don't don't get too excited about yourself. And what I like is that the end of the book goes back to those two themes, meaning you have Hazinu and you have Vezot Bracha. Vezot abracha, Moshe is blessing us that we conquer the land, that we enter the land, that we live up to the potential that he and God are giving us. But uh, Hazino really goes back to these same same ideas. On one hand, you need to keep the Torah. And if you forget God and you forget where everything comes from, you might lose out on it. Mm -hmm. And after you lose out on the land and after something bad happens to you, when you get it back again, it won't necessarily be because you merited it. Because God has other considerations. So we're trying. So Moshe put it into a song. He gave it, you know, he gave it. Uh,
0: It'll be um, easy to remember. An, my easy, daughter just memorized it a few weeks ago.
1: <laughs> okay. And easy to, relatively. A joke. I would easy. never
0: be able to memorize it. They uh-huh. memorized 49 sukim. I would never in my life Right, it But up.
1: it has sort of like a rhythm. Yeah. And it's a song. What, and yeah. what he says is. I want you to remember this. You need to remember not to forget God, but also remember not to forget God. Not only a, on a physical level, but also on a spiritual level. That you're not in the center. Not, it's not always about you. Sometimes it's because God doesn't want them to win, and because He doesn't, and because we represent Him and His name is more important. So, so there's certain two things that we need to remember. We need to remember God, not to forget Him, not to forget what He gave us. But also we need to remember that even when we do get all these things, it doesn't always mean that we're the best in the world. And I don't think we should walk around the world feeling, you know, upset with ourselves. And so what
0: I love about what we've said today is that it's given us a beautiful frame for the very meaning. Also, we've looked at two specific passages in the Parsha and compared them to earlier passages and seen what they've what they have to say that are different. But it's also given us this broad perspective on the first speech versus the second speech. Again, the first speech beginning with the opening of Dvarim. And also, you've already jumped ahead and given us a perspective on the last two partial of the Torah that sort of go back to those themes of the first and second speech of the of the ability to conquer Eretz Yisrael and the importance of remembering that God is always at the at the center and at the core of those capabilities. So I think that you've offered us a beautiful perspective that we'll be able to take with us also retroactively in the previous Parshiot and take with us as we go forward. So I wanna thank you, Adina, for this conversation. Thank
1: you too, it was a lot of fun.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.